Father. We've already been in the book of 1 Corinthians for 29 weeks. 15 chapters and countless hours exegeting this gold. It is very tempting to think we've discovered all there is to discover. We've mined all there is to mine. But that is an irresponsible thought. An unfaithful logic. So we banish the idea. We adjust our theology and we now approach your bottomless word. Help us to see from 1 Corinthians 16 the inexhaustible riches of Christ. And may we leave not saying what an interesting sermon, but rather what an irresistible Christ. Show us the preciousness of our great cornerstone and help us to leave ascribing greater worth to him. God, we want to tremble before your word like the psalmist did. May we never be satisfied with our spiritual progress. May we never neglect what is necessary to be growing, thriving, and advancing in our walk with you. So we request that you take our wills and bend them. Take our hearts and inflame them. Take our minds and instruct them. Take our affections and redirect them. Take our lives and use them. Take our sins and cleanse them. Meet us and free us for your glory and for your name. May this text infuse us with confidence that you're building your church and we are a part of it. This is our collective petition. Now, Father, a personal plea. Help our people to hear a better sermon than I preach. Labor among your people. and Place this text in the deep recesses of their souls. Amen. Would you turn with me for the last time to 1 Corinthians? I kind of thought Paul would have concluded the book at the end of chapter 15. That it would have ended on that soaring high moment of glory. Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Let's end the book with a taunt. A sin-stomping, death-killing, grave-emptying, resurrection taunt. That's the climax. That's the mountain peak. Don't preach past your moment, Paul. Now's the time to drop the mic. Well, if Paul were here to put on an oratorical show, he might have done that. But he is here to theologize the church, not mesmerize it. A blitz... That may be the proper term to describe what Paul has done in this letter. He blitzed the church at Corinth. He stomped all over their toes. He got all up in their business. He read their mail. And by implication, did the same for us. Some of you, you may be glad to see this letter go. She's been a heavy one. Paul only has one chapter left. 
Just some closing comments. How much trouble could he get into in the remaining 24 verses? I mean, how much damage can Paul do in such a small space? Apparently, quite a bit. He's stepping on some more toes, getting in some more of their business, and reading some more of their mail. Paul's at it again, straight meddling. But we understand the inspiration of Scripture. So this isn't merely Paul meddling. This is God correcting. We find in the closing verses, Paul moving with great fluidity. He will talk about a collection of things, a variety of matters. It's like he's cramming a bunch of disjointed thoughts together to make sure he covers everything before he signs off. This is his catch-all. This is his potluck ending. Paul frequently devotes the final chapter of an epistle to practical instructions, a final warning, and some hellos from other friends. We are going to attempt, church, to come in for a landing in our study of 1 Corinthians. What a ride it's been. What a flight. It's been bumpy at times. <laughs> There's been some turbulence. But as one pilot said, the best landing is one you can walk away from. So let's aim for that today. There are four movements in the text. I'll give them to you verbally, and then I will cover them one at a time. Paul serves four dishes at this potluck. Dish one, generosity. Dish two, sovereignty. Dish three, maturity. Dish four, necessity. It's a random splattering of dishes, but so is every potluck. By the way, this is a divine potluck. These words are ultimately from God. So we need to taste of every dish. Dish one, generosity. Paul says, I want the church to be a generous church. Dish two, sovereignty. Paul says, I want the church to see God moving people in and out of their gathering. Dish three, maturity. Paul says, I want the church to stop acting childish and love one another. Dish four, necessity. Paul says, I want the church to kiss one another and kick out the pretenders. They were kissing who they should have been kicking and kicking who they should have been kissing. A potluck ending. Paul serves four dishes. Dish one, generosity. I want the church to be a generous church. Verses one through four. Let's begin in verse one. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you, so you also are to do. The first two words, now concerning. This is the fourth now concerning in the book. Apparently the church wrote Paul asking some questions. He wrote this letter to answer those questions. He didn't start answering their questions until well into the letter, chapter 7. But here toward the end, he finally responds to their fourth question regarding an offering being taken up for the church in Jerusalem. Paul answers by saying, I'll tell you the same thing I told the churches in Galatia. 
You get the same instructions. Paul has mentioned this offering in three of his letters, possibly four. It seems he wanted the churches he planted to give an offering for all of them to pull their funds together for this project, for this common relief. The churches were glad to help. Money came in from three different Roman provinces for the church in Jerusalem. And you might wonder, why does the church in Jerusalem need help? We read in various points in history of famines striking Jerusalem. On top of the economy tanking, persecution raged against Christians in Jerusalem. There is a sister church in extreme poverty, grave financial difficulty, losing their jobs and being beat in the streets because of their faith in the risen Christ. They are under intense persecution. It is hard there. The Jewish church in Jerusalem is now being helped by all these primarily Gentile churches. Jews and Gentiles were not exactly the best of friends. So these churches are reaching across dividing lines. Because there are no dividing lines in Christ's church. Someone noted the Roman Emperor Julian, one of the fiercest persecutors of the Christian church, said of the earliest Christians in disgust, it is a scandal that there is not a single one who is a beggar. They care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. End quote. Verse 2. On the first day of, the, of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Paul did not want a last-minute offering. The church is to collect contributions before Paul arrives. He wants it complete before he steps on the scene. There is no collecting to be taken place after he's arrived. I will not make a special appeal once I get there. Paul will not create a high-pressure giving time in the gathering. The word for collection in verse 1 is treasury. They were to store it in the church treasury. Store it up, set it aside. Don't keep it at your house, bring it to the treasury. Set it aside regularly on the first day of each week. That's Sunday. Something happened that made people who gathered on Saturday for 2,000 years to switch the day to Sunday. What was that? Jesus' resurrection. They changed their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. God's people were to meet on Sundays. Seventh-day Adventists miss this. Hip churches that have Saturday night services miss this. Who is to be involved in this offering? Paul insisted each one contribute. Everybody. There were slaves in this church. They were to give? Yes. John MacArthur said... Our generosity to the Lord's work is best determined by what we give when we have little. Some of these members were wealthy. Some were not. All were giving something. All received grace and all gave grace a gift, a keros. Those who make more money were expected to give more money, but this is not just for the rich in the church. 
The amount given will vary, but the reality of giving should not. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. As he may prosper. That means proportionally. Paul challenges them to give proportionately. In keeping with your income, give. Proportional to your earnings. From what God entrusted to you, give what is equal in weight, what is worthy, what is right. Not whatever is lying around in your pockets. Give what is right, not what is left. Paul doesn't suggest a specific amount. I bet they were waiting for a dollar amount or a percentage amount. He doesn't give them that luxury. In proportion with your income, as God moves your heart. An open heart can't maintain a closed hand. Verse 3. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. In other words, Paul doesn't want the money in his pocket. He says, when I arrive, I will write a letter to send with your collection. We all know stories of religious leaders who abuse money. Paul will not allow the hint of that in his ministry. He is above board. Nor will Paul infringe on the church's autonomy on who to send. He says, you designate some people. You accredit who carries the coin. Designated people from the church will carry the money from Corinth to Jerusalem. An 800 mile journey. Carrying a considerable amount of coin. That's a big fanny pack. They aren't making the trip in a Brinks money truck. No armored guards. No quick press of a button and then it transfers the money there in seconds. This was a long and hard and dangerous journey. Historians tell us they would carry the funds in a money belt or bag suspended from the neck and they would have sewn gold coins in their coats. There is safety in numbers so the church designated multiple people. Never turning it over to a single individual. Nothing haphazard in this collection and delivery process. Paul and the church are as transparent as they are rigorous. Some churches don't handle money responsibly. That's a shame. We, like Paul, should call for faithful accounting of the church's money. Money needs to be handled carefully and honestly. Mismanaged funds are a disgrace. There must be accountability. Paul's calling for generosity in giving and integrity in collecting and delivering. Verse 4. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Whoever you delegate to send your gift, I'll be glad to travel alongside them as long as the money is in their hands. Paul might go with the gift, but he's not in charge of the gift. He's not planning to touch the money himself at all. FFC, we are given a great window into giving in the early church. Their giving should guide the giving of the modern church. This particular gift was a once-for-all gift, a one-time gift, 
a special offering, not a weekly offering. However, there are principles from this one-time gift that apply to recurring gifts. There are principles from this one-time gift that apply to recurring gifts. I want you to notice the place. What place is receiving the money? The local church. Paul had no qualms talking to the church about money. And neither should we. It seems giving was a regular part of corporate worship in the first century. There was a clear priority set on it. The Heidelberg Catechism, used in the Reformation churches, when they tried to define what goes on in a service, one of the things they said was bringing Christian offerings. Even if the giving was not used for that local church, it went through that local church. Giving was primarily to and through the church. This text is a wonderful example of giving to a persecuted church in another region. Jerusalem was a foreign field to Corinth. Paul didn't want to bypass the local church in missions giving. Paul could have formed his own board. Missions board. Send the money to me. No, he wanted to go through the local church. Missions giving through the local church. The church was the missions agency, the mission board. Paul did not tell the church to give to a nonprofit to feed the poor in Jerusalem. There were other agencies feeding people. Paul didn't mention anything about funding them. Give through the church to the church. We teach at FFC that the bulk of your giving ought to be to the local church. The local church is the hub of dispensing monetary gifts. We see that in this passage. Paul did not tell the individuals in the church, just send your money from your wallet to Jerusalem. No, he said, go through your local church. So, so your local church as a whole gives the gift. We've looked at the place, now let's consider the proportion. What did this church give on a regular basis? What are we to give? Before we look at the New Testament giving, let's look at Old Testament giving. Alistair Begg points out in the Old Testament, there was a tithe for the Levites, which was the government. There was a tithe for the national feast, which was the community. And there was a tithe for helping the poor, which was welfare. He's right. Three tithes were paid. One of those was every third year. It amounted to about 23% of one's income. Begg rightly points out Israel was a theocracy. In other words, the government was ruled by God. In order for the structure of the nation to function, they needed these taxes. And these tithes were the taxes so that the nation might function effectively. They are not free will offerings. They were demanded. They were required. They were necessary. This did not include first fruit offerings or allowing the poor to harvest the corners of the field, which everyone in the Old Testament did. The New Testament pattern of giving is even more radical than that. It's 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. You are to give cheerfully, sacrificially, and regularly. 
I don't think Paul would require of us as the richest nation in the history in the history of the world to give less than he would require of one of the poorest nations in the history of the world. It seems when you study this that 10% was a starting point, not a finish line. I, I find it interesting that a few hundred years after this text, Augustine indicated that tithing was still practiced. He said, and I quote, tithes are required as a matter of debt. And he who has been unwilling to give them has been guilty of robbery. Whoever, therefore, desires to secure a reward for himself, let him render tithes. And out of the nine parts left, let him seek to give alms. That was a, that's a gift to the poor. For the first 400 years, the church considered the practice of tithing as a, as a minimum standard of giving, a, a starting point. The floor of your giving, not the ceiling of your giving. Irenaeus, a hundred years after this text, said the Jews were constrained to a regular payment of tithes. That's interesting. To review, in the New Testament, you, us, we are to give cheerfully, sacrificially, and regularly. That's the New Testament way. Principles from this one-time gift that apply to recurring gifts. The place and the proportion. Now, the regularity and the recurrence. The Corinthians were not surprised to see the offering plate come around. They were not surprised like it had never happened before. <laughs> this was a normal pattern. God's people bringing monetary gifts every Sunday. Paul says, in addition to your regular giving, give here to this church in Jerusalem. When the plate comes around, don't sort of look at it in dismay and pat yourself down looking for a few spare coins here or there. Expect this every week. The pattern of New Testament churches is that they gave consistently and deliberately. They planned it. It was systematic, methodical giving. Not sporadic or spasmatic. Don't be an impulse giver. Waiting for a sob story before you give. Something to pull at your heartstrings. Some emotional appeal. That's not New Testament giving. This is not impulse giving. Like I give now that I hear an announcement about it. Or that story moved me and I'm going to give all this money. Then realize later you have no money for the water bill. No. This is advanced planning and preparation rather than last-minute scrambling. Lay aside money regularly. Don't wait for a bonus to land in your lap. The cross compels intentionality in giving. Regular planned giving, not spontaneity. Be as disciplined in your generosity as in your Bible reading. No church in the Bible is shy about asking Christians to give. And I don't know why churches today are. Prioritize the local church in your finances. Well, Kyle, I, uh, I don't give anything now, but I will, you know, someday when my circumstances are different. If your spending leaves you with very little to give away, 
Change your spending habits. The solution is to reduce your spending, not wait, wait for a raise and, and then give to the church. Giving is a spiritual discipline. If you do not plan it, you will not do it. Mature Christianity involves making provisions in advance. Making sacrifices in advance. So you can be more generous. Non-Christian? Non-Christian? In the Bible, there is no category for you giving to the church. None. You are not to give to the church. The church is to give something to you. The gospel. Repent and believe on the God-man, Jesus Christ. Christian, FFC will never, FFC, well, you, you may be wondering, like, what in the world is FFC? Faith Family Church. <laughs> Faith, Faith Family Church. FFC will never employ high-pressure giving tactics or financial gimmicks to play on your emotions. Your giving should be geared by grace, not gimmicks. We will not have an all-in campaign. Come on, church, let's go all-in. Let's go. Let's go. I don't know what it is with these pastors saying, let's go all the time. It's like they listen to Dude Perfect. That's how they study after. We will not talk about planting a seed. Whatever that even means. I don't know what that means. Honestly and humbly evaluate your budget in light of Christ's lordship. A natural implication of receiving the gospel is that you are no longer a hoarder. You are a giver. In the States, we've made finances and giving a really private matter because we idolize money. We just had a seminar on stewardship of finances a few weeks ago. And the teacher and I were talking. And we were talking about how, how people will give intimate details about other areas of their life. Sin, like viewing pornography, getting angry, getting jealous. We will talk about really private things in other areas. But then when it comes to money, we say, oh, oh, that's private. You've heard of people asking for accountability in their Bible reading? Asking for accountability in their internet use? Why doesn't anyone say, I need accountability in my giving? Will you ask me that awkward question and keep me accountable in giving? Giving doesn't seem to be a private affair in the scriptures. It just doesn't. A couple more truths from these first four verses. FFC, we are not the only church doing the work of God. The church at Corinth was giving to another local church in Jerusalem. We need to be encouraged by what God is doing in other places, not threatened by it. Other local congregations are not our competitors. There needs to be, like it was here, an interconnectedness and mutual love between churches. We do not need to become inward focused where we huddle together and complain that we are the only true ones left. FFC, 
we are not the only church doing the work of God. FFC, our generosity doesn't excuse our sin in other areas. Our generosity doesn't excuse our sin in other areas. This text teaches that just because a church has spare money and nice buildings doesn't mean their theology is right and that they are spiritually healthy. Corinth gave money but still refused to do church discipline. Still bickered with one another and still allowed weak theology into their midst. You do not judge the health of a church on its buildings and budgets. The church in America may look really healthy if you only went by those two measuring sticks. A potluck ending. Paul serves four dishes. We need to taste each dish. Dish one, generosity. We want the church to be a generous church. Dish two, sovereignty. I want the church to see God moving people in and out of their gathering. Verses 5 through 11. Verse 5. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. Paul relays his travel plans. He's writing from Ephesus across the sea from Corinth, announcing the, the travel itinerary would have been a, a regular part of letters in antiquity. At this stage in the planning, Paul intends to visit the church at Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, then swing south to Achaia and visit the Corinthians. Verse 6. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. <laughs> I, I'm, I may spend Christmas with you, have a heated blanket, some hot chocolate, enjoy the snow. It wasn't easy to travel during the winter. Paul would wait out the harsh months with them. Then... They would help him on his journey, supply food, a donkey for travel, ship fare for crossing bodies of water, practical support, helping him reach the next destination to preach the gospel. Paul had a passion to get the message out. He's, he's pouring over the map, looking for the next frontier. Where might God take me next? One theologian said, Paul in one way, was a very discontent guy. He always wanted to reach more people, train more people. There was a holy restlessness about him, never content with how far the gospel had spread. Discontentment is sinful. It is sinful 99% of the time. But there can be a godly discontentment. Paul possessed it. Verse 8. Excuse me, verse 7. For I do not want to see you now, just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you. If the Lord permits. Paul doesn't desire a fleeting visit. If he went now, he would only be able to stay for a short time. I don't want to drop in between other primary destinations. I want a good, long, leisurely visit I want to have long talks and long teachings, not a fly-by-night. Paul says, I will be there soon, but then he qualifies his plans. 
Notice the tentative way he states his plans. If the Lord permits. His travel plan is conditional upon the Lord's own plans. He's subject to the Lord's adjustment. Paul is not fickle or indecisive. This is not even true tentativeness. This is submission to God's providential changing of his plans. He knows God can override his itinerary. Our itinerary is in the hands of the sovereign. Our plans should always be subject to the Lord's revisions. We rest in the overarching providence of God when our plans are changed. Dish too is sovereignty and we need to taste it. David Livingston wanted to go to China, but the Lord sent him to Africa. Are you this content when the Lord changes your plans? Is that how you view your disappointments? Do you possess a godly gospel flexibility? Paul says, I only come if it's the Lord's will. Verse 8, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. We get a little glimpse into Paul's missionary plans, a summary of his intentions. Paul used strategic planning. Where would it make most impact for the gospel to spend my time? Ephesus is the answer. Postpone his visit to Europe, verse 7. Prolong his stay in Ephesus, verse 8 and 9. He will stay until Pentecost, an agricultural festival 50 days after the Passover. There are priorities in ministry. Pastors have to say no to some things. Paul does that here. I will not visit you now. I will come later. Verse 9. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. Let me tell you about Ephesus. It's a university town. Elite university, not party university. Big brains everywhere. And the city was full of paganism, idolatry, the occults. Let me tell you about the door in Ephesus. Paul brought the gospel to the synagogues for three straight months. He preached in university settings in the school of Tyrannus for two years. He found hearts thirsting for the grace of God. All the city heard the gospel. God had given Paul an effective work. He could not leave until he had done all the Lord wanted him to do. Paul didn't run from work. He didn't run from hard tasks. He ran to it, to the effective work. Let me tell you about the city, the door, now the adversaries. Demetrius. Demetrius and the band of troublers threatened Paul. There was mushrooming opposition, great hostility. Evangelism flourishes under fierce opposition. These two statements describe Paul's life as a missionary. A wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. The door 
is a metaphor for opportunity. Satan cannot afford to neglect a single opportunity of the forward march of the church. So he sends adversaries. He sends opposition to the gospel and to those who carry it. The devil is always active when he risks losing his spoils. The gospel always meets with resistance. And the opening and closing of doors, that's the Lord's work. Paul didn't open the door. The Ephesians didn't open the door. No man can shut a door God has opened. And no man can open a door God has shut. Our job is simply to enter the doors, not open the doors. Walk through them, not kick them down. A wide door for effective ministry has opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. <laughs> Paul didn't say, but there are many adversaries. Rather, and there are many adversaries. Overcoming difficulty is part of the opportunity. Do you think, well, if there's any opposition, things must be going terribly? Wrong. Maybe things are going swimmingly. The gospel will not always generate positive reception from the world around you. Don't assume if there's opposition, you are on the wrong path. G. Campbell Morgan said, If you have no opposition in the place you serve, you're serving in the wrong place. <laughs> oh, Kyle, something must be going wrong. Maybe something is going right. But I'm facing resistance. This is hard. That's normal. Opposition is not always a sign you're on the wrong path. It's often a sign you're on the right one. Every significant accomplishment ever done for God came through a lot of opposition. Verse 10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. In other words, I sent him to you. He's on the way. The letter arrives before the preacher boy. Timothy had to follow Paul's letter. How bad is life for Timothy? Paul has ripped the Corinthians for days. Basically, dropkick them in the teeth over and over and over again. Now Paul says, hey, Timothy, got a job for you. What a daunting prospect for Timothy. Commentators have for years tried to develop a psychological profile on Timothy. Pulling different texts together and attempting to learn of the man. He seems to have been shy and carried a timid disposition. He was young and could be easily intimidated. Paul may have feared the church would dishonor Timothy because he was Paul's representative. Mad at Paul because of what he wrote, then take it out on young Timothy, bully him, frighten him. Paul wanted a warm reception for Timothy. Nothing frigid and chilly, no cold shoulder, rather a warm embrace. Don't scare the poor lad. Make him feel at home. He works hard for the master, just like I do. The church at Corinth was one of those churches you know, that, that could take pastors, chew them up, 
and spit them out. Verse 11. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me for I am expecting him with the brothers. God isn't going to leave Timothy in that local church forever but he's going to be in that local church for a time. See God moving Timothy in and out of your gathering. Treat him right. Don't disrespect him. Evidently, the church had a proclivity to do that. Maybe they had a temptation to reject young pastors, to think they knew better. Well, he, doesn't, he doesn't have enough life experience. Paul says, if he comes back with a black eye, you and me got problems. Paul and Timothy will move in and out of the church at Corinth. We at FFC will have multiple people move in and out of our church. I want you to see God's sovereignty in it. A potluck ending. Paul serves four dishes at this potluck. Dish one, generosity. I want the church to be a generous church. Dish two, sovereignty. I want the church to see God moving people in and out of their gatherings. Dish three, maturity. I want the church to stop acting childish and love one another. Verses 12 through 18. We need the taste of this dish. Verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. But it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. This is the fifth and final now concerning in the letter. The church had apparently asked about Apollos, their pastor. Paul wanted Apollos to return to the church at Corinth, but it wasn't his will. Some commentators say this means God's will. The lack of qualifiers suggests it wasn't Apollos' will. Paul will not coerce Apollos. He left it up to Apollos to return on his own, on his own recognizance. Now, two men can disagree on a certain path forward and still be brothers in Christ. Apollos says, Paul, I'm not ready to go back. He doesn't think it's the right time, but there will be a right time. Didymus the blind... 250 years after this account said Apollos left the church because of divisions. They were enamored with the rhetoric of Apollos. He was not interested in fostering that unhealthy view. He didn't like his name being used in factual, factional arguments. Some say he realized his oratorical gifts created a personality cult and he stepped away. He refused to allow himself to be worshipped by the church. They had an improper view of their pastor and he would not let it continue. If only we had more pastors like that today. Apollos did not want to return until the divisions were healed. Verse 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Paul gives a, a machine gun of exhortations. Just one right after another. They are surprising as they are abrupt. Let's look at them again. Be watchful. Don't fall asleep. Stay awake. Stay alert. 
Avoid carelessness, avoid dreaminess, avoid indifference. There is no slumbering at your post in the Christian life. Stand firm in the faith. This is an imperative, guardedness. Hold fast to right doctrine. Hold your position. Do not retreat. Do not give up ground. Be ready for the blow. Stand firm at the point of conflict. You can't continue to be indifferent. There is a gospel to believe, proclaim, and defend. Stand firm in the faith is probably shorthand for obey everything I've written in my letter. Then he says, act like men. In the King Jimmy, it reads, quit you like men. Play the man. Act like a man. Don't act like a child. Now, is he talking to only men in the church? Does he want the women to act like men? Is this a command directed towards everyone? There is a strength and courage attached to manhood and masculinity, and he wanted everyone in the church to possess that strength and courage. I, I do think this has the idea of stop acting childish, act mature. Like men, the idea of being mature as opposed to immature. This is a call to Christian maturity. Stop acting childish and grow to maturity in Christ. Then he says, be strong. He says, church, be strong. God's people have always needed calls to strength and courage. Not to give in to fear and hopelessness. The church has shown some weakness in this area. Cowardliness. He says, be resolute, be brave, be courageous. Put away your fears. This is a call for persevering strength. You live in a time of prevailing night. This is an hour when mature leadership is needed. These four commands are things a military general might say to his troop before going into battle. But there's another command. Verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. Five different virtues. Five unique commands. The first four without the fifth leads you to be militant and hard. The fifth, without the first four, leads you to be soppy, mushy, and a sentimentalist who will not take a stand for anything. All of these commands were pretty standard in the Greco-Roman world except for the last one. Paul gives this marvelous balancing note. Love should govern everything. Paul is not squelching tenderness and affection. Strength and love go hand in hand. They were not loving one another. There was childishness going on in the church. And Paul wanted it to stop. We don't have time for this. We are fighting a spiritual war. Verse 15. Now, I urge you, brothers. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. And that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Paul commends leaders to the church, highlights people they can trust, 
Stephanus was mentioned in chapter 1. He was converted under, under Paul's preaching and was baptized by Paul. He was an early leader in the church. Paul gives an endorsement of his whole household. This man and his family decisively and deliberately dedicated themselves to the service of their local church. The King James uses the word addicted. They were addicted to serving the church. <laughs> what a blessed addiction. At salvation, God gives you new addictions. It may be shocking for some of you to see this word associated with Christian service. This is an all-consuming, all-absorbing, overpowering desire that Paul says is very healthy. They were servaholics. And he says, take them as your pattern and your goal. This service was not assigned to them. They just took up this ministry. Completely self-motivated. Verse 16. Be subject to such as these. And every fellow worker and laborer. Because they are devoted to the service of the church, submit to them. He commends this to the church at large. We don't like submission because it takes us out of a place of control. Verse 17. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. These three were likely couriers of the letter to Paul and then from Paul. They were members of the church at Corinth. Some scholars believe the last two, Fortunatus and, and Achaicus, were slaves, freed slaves, maybe members of Stephanus' household. Fortunatus means lucky. Achaicus means a guy from Achaia, both common names given to slaves. Slaves or sons, most likely. Paul trusts these men. They display a warmth and genuineness in the gospel. Verse 18. For they refuse, no, excuse me, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours, give recognition to such people. <laughs> Have you ever noticed Paul loves mentioning fellow laborers in his letters? He was a team player, he led a collaborative ministry, he wasn't a lone ranger. He fills his letters with names. He made a lot of friends in the local church, they refreshed my spirit. Praise God for those who refresh the saints. Paul says, they, they put gas in my tank. They wind my clock. They infuse me with encouragement. They make me smile and rejoice in God. They came with buoyant, glad, thankful hearts. And it lifted Paul's spirit. Are you a refresher to God's people? Or a depressor to God's people? Paul wants the church to be liberal and generous with their recognition. Thank them. It's appropriate to thank people in the church, to thank all the servants over there taking care of your children each Sunday. Don't value flashiness over faithfulness. Thank the people that seek to encourage the church. In every age, God builds his church through ordinary people like Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. Honor those who are striving to bring you to maturity in Christ. 
a potluck ending. Paul serves four dishes at this potluck. We need to taste every dish. Dish one. Now, I'm just thinking about this. This, this sounds hypocritical. We used to have potlucks here when I first came at the end of every uh, service. We were, we were much smaller then, and um, I would never go to them. I just, I can't do potlucks. Paul serves, that has nothing to do with this. Let's just get back. Stick to the manuscript. <laughs> Paul serves four dishes at this potluck, and we need to taste every dish. Dish one, generosity. I want the church to be a generous church. Dish two, sovereignty. I want the church to see God moving people in and out of their gatherings. Dish three, maturity. I want the church to stop acting childish and love one another. Dish four, necessity. I want the church to kiss one another and kick out the pretenders. Verses 19 through 24. Verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Again, you see local churches encouraging other local churches. Aquila and Prisca, or sometimes translated Priscilla, Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Aquila and Priscilla, this couple is everywhere in your New Testament. Everyone knows them. They're mentioned six times in the Bible. Godly couple, husband and wife team, not pastors, faithful church members. How they show up in like every church is just wild to me. We find them in Ephesus, in Rome, in Corinth. Wherever the Lord moved them, they were involved in a local church. They seem to be wealthy held many gatherings in their home. They were a hospitable family. They actually discipled Apollos. Thank God for couples in the church who are big on hospitality and big on discipleship. Verse 20. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Paul says... There's been some unholy kissing going on, and I'm not about it. There needs to be some holy kissing. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. Give kisses. This is widespread in the ancient world. Everybody is kissing. It was a, a general custom in Paul's day. It was customary to give a kiss of warm greeting or departure. This would be like, Kissing the air and your, your cheek touches their cheek. Men greeting men this way, women greeting women this way. You may remember Jesus, Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss like this. It was a betraying kiss, a fake faux affection. Every time you kiss one another, do it with genuine affection and love. Don't be a Judas, don't lie with your kisses. It's interesting to me that no one ever battles whether we should greet one another with a holy kiss. Paul clearly tells people to do it, just like he did with the head covering earlier in the book. The cultural expression, kiss one another, the timeless truth, show warm gospel affection for each other. The cultural expression, kiss one another, the timeless truth, show warm gospel affection for each other. The church, they were not kissing one another. They were kicking one another. Kissing the wrong people and kicking the wrong people. 
Verse 21. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Essentially, what the apostle means is that he is now taking up the pen and he's writing out verses 21, 22, 23, 24. His pattern was to dictate letters to a scribe. But from this point on, no more dictating. He, he wanted to do more than just tack his name on the end. He takes up the pen to end the letter. Why? Likely to avoid the suspicion of forgery. He didn't want his letter dismissed. Well, there's some hard things there. I don't think Paul really wrote that. He wrote it to say, I am the apostle and I approve this message. A mark of authenticity. Verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. Then let me read that pleasant verse again. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. Paul conveys one last warning. Love Christ or be cursed by him. This is a, a curse prayer formula. Not loving Christ is the ultimate sin. A curse rests upon all who do not recognize the lordship of Christ. Judgment awaits. Paul knew there were some pretenders among them. They do not belong in the fellowship of God's people. Throw them out. Kick them out. You haven't been church disciplining and you need to start. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And these people care nothing about keeping his commandments. Stop tolerating serious and penitent sin in the body. This is a necessity. Kiss one another. Kick out the pretenders. The word for let him be accursed, one word in the original language, anathema. Anathema. One word for the pretenders, one word for the genuine. The one word for the pretenders, anathema. The one word for the genuine, maranatha. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. An eager yearning felt by the church for the Lord's speedy return. The return of Christ for some will be anathema. For others, it will be maranatha. Those who love Jesus long for him to come. Verse 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. The final two verses lack any verb at all. The English translations supply the verb. This is Paul's goodbye, his farewell, his all the best. A benediction of grace. God's grace commits people to his will. All of Paul's letter, letters conclude with a grace benediction. One pastor said, there is no other single word in the Christian vocabulary that most fully and adequately expresses what God has done and will do for his people in Jesus than the word grace. Verse 24. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Love frames the letter. 
Chapter 1, Paul says, I love you. Chapter 16, he repeats, I love you. Paul had to admonish them repeatedly for their behavior. Other than Galatians, I do not know of a more verbally strong letter. Such love must also exist in churches today. I love you. This is wrong. I love you. This is why I have to call you out on this. Now, one closing application as we leave this book and look back over the series as a whole. 16 chapters, 30 weeks, countless hours of exposition lead us to here. Are you going to receive the exact same letter the church at Corinth received and refuse to obey it? Are you going to receive the exact same letter the church at Corinth received and refuse to obey it? A little detective sleuthing, and you will find out it didn't work out the way Paul wanted. His plans evolved, and he visited them twice, once before and once after Macedonia. He had to make an unplanned visit to Corinth. He called it painful. He was forced to make a sudden sea journey to visit them. They were in worse shape than he thought. He had to visit because they read this letter, preached through this letter, and obeyed none of it. He laid out before them a potluck and they refused to taste of any of the dishes. We know what it looks like when a church fails to obey this letter. May God grant us the privilege to live out what it looks like when a church obeys this letter. Father, help us not only to hear your word, but to obey your word. You have, through this exposition of 1 Corinthians, shown us the beauty of Christ. Help us not to look away. Father, we really believe you have used this exposition to build your church. We have grown through this book. We have a clearer view of who you are. We have a clearer view of how we are to live worthy of this gospel we proclaim. Verse by verse, 1 Corinthians has been good for our church. We needed it. Please help it to continue to bear fruit for the furtherance of your name. Amen.